I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. This week, during his visit to Cuba, Pope Benedict was asked by the country's revolutionary icon Fidel Castro, what does a Pope do? On Tuesday, Dublin and Aussie Rules footballer Jim Steins was accorded a state funeral in Victoria. The ecumenical service took place at St Paul's Anglican Cathedral in Melbourne. Yesterday, a Russian Orthodox priest serving in Blanchardstown in Dublin, Father Godfrey O'Donnell, became the first Orthodox president of the Irish Council of Churches. And a Gallup poll has shown that in the US, Mississippi is the most religious state, with Vermont and New Hampshire being least religious. Next week is Holy Week, when Christians remember the Passion of Christ and the week is being commemorated in a special way at All Saints Anglican Church in Rohini in Dublin, which hosts a Bible-reading marathon, the theme of which is hope. Senator Fergal Quinn will perform the first reading at three o'clock on Sunday afternoon and the marathon continues non-stop until Holy Thursday. Carol Conway is a member of the organising committee and she joins us now. Tell us about the Anglican Church, first of all. Well, it's a particularly historic building in the area. That church was built by Lord Ardalon. It was part of the Guinness Estate, which originally they had a home in St Anne's Park and is itself over 200 years old and also hosts the uh, bodies of Lord Arthur Guinness and his wife Charlotte and a number of the members of the family. So a particularly beautiful and historic church in the area. And it's not normally open, is it? Well, it's open regularly for service, but it wouldn't be open through the day and night. And that's one of the uh, really nice side benefits of the Bible Reading Marathon is that the church, because people are reading continuously day and night, will be open day and night from Palm Sunday till Holy Thursday. So anybody living locally or visiting locally is more than welcome to visit and sit and listen to the readings or if there's a slot available even perhaps join in. So how did all this come about? Well last year we hosted this event as a very special event for the 400th anniversary of the original um, publication of the King James Version of the Bible and as part of a major fundraising drive we were involved in to restore the roof of the church and as the week progressed it transpired to be something really very moving, very spiritual, very community based. There were people of all faiths and none who joined us to listen to the readings, to join in the readings. So the committee felt this year that it was worth repeating the venture to give people that opportunity to engage in something that was really very uh, positive, very inspiring. Uh, the, The language in the King James Bible is just so lyrical and beautiful. People have really enjoyed that, so we hope they will again this year. We'll come back to the Bible in a second, but the theme this year is hope. The theme this year is hope. I suppose the sense is that if we were to listen to your own good station day and night, we would get a lot of messages about how difficult life is at the moment. We hear a lot of talk about recession, all of which is true. And yet people need to continue to persevere, to move out of these difficult times. And so anything that can give people an opportunity to reflect, to regain some hope, some positivity, some optimism in their lives is a valuable thing. And that was very much part of the outcome of last year's uh, marathon. And we have deliberately focused on that for this year as being relevant to the times that we live in. Now we talked about the King James Bible, the 400th anniversary last year. We featured it here on this programme too. Why does that Bible appeal so much to people? Well, it's fascinating to me because 
to be honest, until last year, I wasn't as aware of the influence the King James Bible has had, aside altogether from any theological debates about the accuracy of the translations. The language in it is extremely beautiful and people are surprised, I remain surprised, how many phrases have remained in common vernacular English every time you talk about somebody being salt of the earth, when we talk about political machinations and wheels within wheels, filthy lucre, these are all phrases lifted directly from the King James translation. And certainly Melvin Bragg, who who wrote extensively on this last year and published a book, uh, suggests the thesis that, in fact, it was one of the most influential documents because of the timing of its publication and because of the colonisation of other parts of the world, that really it's had an enduring influence on the language that we use globally. And I gather you have a rather special copy of it for your marathon. We have. I mean, we had a, a beautiful copy that we used last year that has been in the church for a number of years. And as a result of last year's Bible reading marathon, we were contacted by the Munsell family, who are now resident in, in England. Um, John and Catherine Munsell were very prominent members of what is now Rohini Parish. And they lived at the time in Edenmore House, which is now St Joseph's Hospital. And this particular Bible that they've re- returned to the church was presented to the Munsell family in 1851. Um, And in fact, at the back of that Bible contains a lot of historical information about the family and the family tree. So it's a particularly special uh, edition for us and was returned as a gift to the church directly as a result of last year's event. Have all the slots been filled? The majority of slots have been filled, which again... Even through the night ones? Even through the night, particularly through the night, actually. The night is more or less done. There are nonetheless some slots still available. And if anybody was interested, they'd be more than welcome to join us. They should ring um, Roger Sterling on 086-101-6670 or Brian Leonard on 086-237-8229. And even if people aren't interested in reading, as I say, the church will be open... Uh, we conclude at noon on Holy Thursday and there'll be a service and anyone is welcome to join at that stage. But people can drop in and sit and listen at any stage over those four days. Well, producer Jerry McArdle and myself will be taking part, not in the middle of the night, I hasten to add, but we'll put all the details up on our website. Carol Conway, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you very much, Eileen. As the representative of an entire world religion, (laughs) a world religion, Mm -hmm. Do you know what that's like? It's exhausting. (laughs) And it can feel so heavy. Sometimes it makes me angry. And sometimes I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of not crossing some unknown rule of gender interaction to prevent folks from having a field day and saying, see, those religious girls, they're freaks. That was an extract from the hijabi monologues performed recently at the Peacock Theatre in Dublin, written by Sahar Ulla of Chicago University. Rather like the vagina monologues, it's based on a series of all-American real-life accounts from Muslim women who wear the hijab or headscarf. Hijabi, as in the title, is the US slang word for women who cover in this fashion. Our regular contributor, Claire McCormack, went along to see it, accompanied by Fardus Sultan, a Muslim woman living in Ireland. Fardus, you're from Bosnia originally. The aim of the hijabi monologues was to unsettle the stereotypes and move beyond the politically charged debate 
about the hijab? Did it work in your opinion? Oh, very much so. I really enjoyed the play. Um, I, I wasn't sure exactly what to expect. Uh, and very often when you hear word Muslims or Islam in, in media nowadays, I tend to cringe and think, well, what now? What happened now? Um, and this was such a pleasant surprise because um, I thought it would be very much politically uh, charged play, uh, but it was um, surprisingly lighthearted at times. And But it was... It, dealt with some serious topics but of everyday life and for me the success of that was in that it managed for the for the audience for us to forget that the ladies were actually Muslims that were that they were covered and they were able to see the Muslim story behind the person and I think that's so important um, because very often when I'm outside and in the community um, I feel very much like everyone else but I know that people when they look at me I forget that I'm wearing a job but I know that when people look at me they sometimes forget that you know uh, I might have everyday worries as everyone else. Claire the stories these women tell I've just seen a couple of extracts on it on YouTube but the stories they tell are the stories that you or I could tell so did you have preconceptions conceived notions before you went? I didn't really know what to expect like Fardis but I suppose I did give in to maybe more Western secularised perceptions and I thought there would be more references to victimhood, to tragedy. Um, I thought there'd be maybe a mention of September 11th, uh, Guantanamo Bay or something but they were very human stories so yes I was completely surprised by it and very surprised at my own connection with it and how I could identify with some of the women not not all of the stories, but the, the ones about school, about kids being bullied in school, about being late for class in college because you were up late on Facebook or something. I could relate to those stories. The stories weren't about the hijab. The stories were about the women behind the hijab. The hijab were, was mm. the background. They also packed quite an emotional punch, Fardus. Yes, yes. I found that uh, the way that they've uh, written the play was that they've introduced you into the stories of the hijabi woman gradually through the play and they made you more and more involved into their lives. And for me, the, the peak was really when, they, um, when there was a story of a mother who lost her, her son in a car crash. Um, and at that point, I could hardly contain um, myself crying. Um, only because I identified with her on that level that she's a mother and I'm a mother. Um, and and I think I, I've look, I briefly, when I was embarrassed, you know, for crying, I looked around and I saw so many people crying as well. Um, and I think, you know, that is a, you know, brilliant example of um, of uh, of the play in question that it deals with those, uh, with those issues that, you know, um, a present in the community, regardless of the religion, I really enjoyed it. And when the when the um, the play finished, I was sad that it, it it ended because I could I could have listened more and more of that. Now the play was brought in by the Irish Immigrant Council and the British Council, and there were workshops over the weekend to encourage women. Did you get to any of those? Parties? I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't. But I would very much like to see Irish perspective, and that's the plan, is it, Claire? They have performed in 60 states in the US or 60 performances in the US. Mary Fitzgerald um, was involved in bringing the hijabi monologues over from the US. So it's for the audience to go take whatever they can from it and come up with their own variation of the story in their own communities. So the next time, hopefully when they come back, they will give Dublin the heads up. So we know they're coming. We can come up with our own variation 
of the story and that will be told on stage so that the Irish Muslim community can connect with it. Founders, if I can come back to you, historically we Mm. tend to be obsessed with how a woman looks, whether she's covered or not. And one line which we heard in that extract there alludes to the notion that the Muslim woman wearing a headscarf can be viewed as a representative of the entire religion. Yes. Did that resonate with you? Oh, completely. I completely identified with that. And I was so surprised that someone actually felt that way because I I didn't think that it was so prominent. But, you know, uh, I was uh, I mentioned it earlier to Claire my own instances that when I'm driving you know I I, I, I wasn't always a co- I wasn't always covered I only covered in the last in 2007 so I don't know four and a half years now um and I've been driving for over 10 years. So when I drive nowadays and if someone takes my right away and if someone is rude uh, my pre-hijab behaviour would be to tell them to show them how upset I was with my my manners or pressing a horn but nowadays I wouldn't do that I would tolerate that and I would accept, accept such behaviour only because I would think well what would that person think of me they would only remember that I'm wearing hijab and they would say well look how bad she's behaving you know I'm aware of the significance of hijab for myself that I want to make sure that people have a good perception uh, of, of Muslim women and I know know that Muslim community is so diverse, you know, there are, you know, like any community um, that I cannot, um, you know, represent everyone, but I'm trying kind of to to counteract the bad impressions of the community that, you know, I'm doing whatever I can. Well, can we ask, why did you decide to cover four and a half years ago? And are you sometimes tempted then just to take it off? Thank God I never took it off uh, since I covered. Um, But uh, the the, the more I read about the religion, I was born Muslim, but I wasn't practicing Muslim being grown up, uh, grown up in socialist country. Um, but the more I found out about my religion, uh, some of it was really because of the war, you know, that I was forced to find out why someone was against me only because of my name or religion. Um, so the more I found out about the religion I f- and the more I read, I found out that actually I have to cover, there are certain things that I have to do if I'm considering myself as a practicing Muslim. Some of them, obviously, first thing would be to pray to believe and then to pray but then there is also certain behaviour a way I should dress and behave not only ladies not only women but men as well and I was saying to Claire I'm such an avid reader I've read I tend to read on average a book book a week um, and up to maybe, you know, I'm, sh- I'm ashamed to say, but up to maybe f- uh, four or five years ago, I haven't read a Quran. Only then I read it. And I thought, well, what will be my justification for not reading it after reading all those books? So I've read that. And there I found a number of references in the Quran that the lady, the woman should cover themselves. Firstly, men should lower their gaze, but also the woman should lower the gaze and cover themselves. Claire, the hijabi monologues and the vagina monologues but there's a difference in emphasis. Mm. Explain. Um, the hijabi monologues is an inverse of the vagina monologues. The vagina monologues was about making something very, very private and taking it into the public realm and making it very public. And the the hijabi monologues is about taking something quite public and telling it through very personal perspectives. 
Now, when Fardus was talking about the story of the woman who lost her son, one thing that struck me watching that was she talked about the mourners coming in and passing through the man's room to get to the women's room. Were there other things like that that struck you that were very different? There were other references in the play as well about um, a young girl who was bullied at school. She was overweight and um, a neighbour, a male Muslim as well um, showed interest in her and they fell in love well according to the girl they fell in love um, he was not in love with her and essentially used her she got pregnant and um, he abandoned her and she was only a young 16 year old and um, that seemed to be just accepted in the play there was very little about there was very little about the the reaction to this young man and what he had done but it was all about her and how she had um, how it affected her future and why she did this and how she shouldn't have done it and she should have known better. And there's very little reference to the male's involvement. We'll leave it at that. Claire McCormack and Fardus Sultan, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. As we mentioned at the start of the programme, next week is Holy Week and one of the episodes in Christ's Passion that we commemorate is the Last Supper, an event that could never have taken place without the older Jewish feast of Passover, which begins next Friday. To tell us about Passover, Rabbi Zalman Lent spoke to us yesterday and I began by asking him about the story behind the feast. The story of Passover took place about uh, 3,400 years ago. And you have the Jewish people, the ancient Hebrews, are enslaved in Egypt, uh, building cities and making bricks. And the the famous story of the burning bush that God meets, uh, Moses sees the burning bush and he gets this message to go down and save the people. And all of this Hebrew nation are then freed they're emancipated from this terrible slavery that they're in. So the Passover, or as we say in Hebrew, the Pesach uh, festival, simply commemorates the exodus from Egypt, the freeing of that nation from, from slavery. And how long does the festival last? Biblically, it's a seven-day festival. Outside Israel, it's an eight-day festival. And what are the main events during the festival? There's lots of uh, prayer services throughout the festival, but the, the main event, and this would be the um, kind of the, the one single event that's kept by most of the Jewish people, including you know maybe non-observant or more secular Jews, would be the seder or, or seder, which is a family meal held on the, on the, the first two evenings of, of Passover or in Israel just on the first uh, one evening and that's a, ca- a really big event it's there's a big lead up to it there's lots of preparation and it's a it's a very special family time so it's from the grandparents the parents the children the little ones everyone is there and it's a very involved meal it's uh, the kids are very active participants and there's all kinds of symbolism and song and so it kind of uh, it builds really really good memories for the family there's a prohibition on uh, Passover of having any leaven or leavened products in the home. Uh, and this is related to the story of the Exodus where the Jews were fleeing Egypt, they're in a hurry, and so the, the dough that they're preparing doesn't have time to rise, and so they end up having this unleavened kind of uh, cracker instead of a bread. So we commemorate that by eating those crackers, which we call matzot, but there's an additional biblical prohibition of actually owning or having any possession of 
of any leavened products for the whole eight days of the Pesach festival. And, and the rules are quite stringent. So generally, for a long time leading up to Passover, there's this huge spring cleaning and the whole house is turned upside down and any traces of, of leaven or crumbs or bread are removed. Now, it's kind of morphed into a spring cleaning as well. So as well as removing the bread and the grain and the pasta and the pizza, it's also, it's also a time to really give a completely... A thorough spring cleaning to the house, but the actual prohibition is is simply any grain, any any product made of the five grains, which are uh, wheat, barley, rye, oats, and spelt. So that would include liquid products like whiskey or beer, uh, dry products, pasta, cereal, anything like that. All has to be either eaten before. Uh, the festival or drunk if it's uh, whiskey maybe some people prefer to finish all their whiskey before the festival uh, most people uh, would tend to sell the any grain products that they have rather than dispose of them actually sell them it's kind of an interesting process where it's sold and rebought after the festival kind of a loophole really there's lots of symbolic foods. There's a plate in the centre of the table we call a seder plate, and that has uh, six symbolic foods on it. There are also three, <coughs> uh, three of these crackers, these matzot, on the table, and we try and have the very traditional hand-baked round matzah crackers, which are very you know, uh, evocative of, of what they would have actually eaten uh, back in the day. Uh, so there's, there are lots of steps through this meal. Very symbolic. There's salt water, which reminds us of the tears of the slaves. There's there's a paste called charoset, which is um, it's meant to resemble the the kind of mortar, the cement of the building during the slave labor in Egypt. So there's lots of different symbolic foods. One of them would be uh, a bitter herb, which we call maror, meaning bitter. So a bitter herb, again symbolizing the bitterness of slavery. And all that. Once all those stages have gone through, eating the eating the crackers. There's a, one of the stages of the Seder is, is actually a meal, just a, like a, a festive meal. It's kind of a late night meal. Um, the Seder begins normally, you know, around nine o'clock-ish this time of the year. So it's quite late and we have to keep the kids awake. And now the reason the children are so involved is because the Torah tells us, you pass the message on to your children. So the, you know, how do we make sure that the story of the Exodus and this great, you know, the formation of the Jewish people, because they leave Egypt um, and then they go straight into the, the Sinai Desert, they receive the, the Torah, they have this divine revelation, they become a nation. So the parents and grandparents are telling the story over to the children and the young ones at the table. So we make sure that the kids are all there, we keep them involved, there's lots of strange things that we don't normally do, we kind of recline when eating some of the foods instead of sitting upright. So the kids are always very inquisitive, they're asking questions, they get to hide a, a piece of the matzah, they hide it away and they, and they um, in some families they kind of ransom it back, they won't give it back unless they get some kind of small reward. So the reason the kids are are so involved is to make sure that the story gets transmitted from generation to the next generation. Now part of the ritual is the drinking of wine at different stages. There are four cups of wine to be drunk. Is that, that given that, to the children? Well, <laughs> there are four, uh, four glasses of wine or grape juice. It doesn't have to be uh, alcoholic. It can be low alcohol wine. Um, and these are, these are commemorative of four expressions of redemption that are mentioned in the Bible. So we have the four glasses of wine. Uh, now, they don't have to be full glasses of, you know, they can be small amounts. They can be, um, as I said, a low alcohol version. Uh, yeah, in, most, in many families, the kids would have some wine and there's no harm. You know, I think uh, traditionally Jews don't have a... Uh, a strong propensity for, for for drink, and and I sometimes think maybe it's because as kids they have to drink this sweet sacramental wine. It puts them off alcohol for life. Finally, is there a particular blessing or a particular message that you'd have for the feast of Passover? 
Well, I think there are there's some very beautiful words that we say at the beginning of the of the Seder meal. Uh, they're actually not Hebrew, they're written in Aramaic. And what we say is, as we open the meal, we say, kol kol which means, whoever is hungry, let them come and eat. Whoever is in need, let them come and join the Passover meal. And I think that's uh, the most lovely message, that before we sit down and eat, that we think of those that are in need, that may be hungry, that may be suffering, and to say, if you're hungry, come and join us. If you're in need, let's you know, let us help you get what you need. That was Rabbi Zalman Lent talking to us yesterday and we hope that our Jewish listeners enjoy their holiday. Every year, Yankee Fackler, a member of the Dublin Jewish Progressive Community, runs a communal Passover and at 5.35 on Sunday evening on RTE1 television, he recounts the story of his father's escape from Nazi Germany and how this departure from oppression into freedom is very much the theme of the holiday. Of course, for Christians, next Friday, Friday is Good Friday when the death of Jesus is commemorated and we'll be back then with a very special programme for you when we pose the question, why did he die? In the meantime, our phone number is 012082039. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie and our postal address, the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. Until Good Friday then, Sláin is Because I gotta have faith. Mm-hmm. 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 M